0: So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So we have uh, not been together for this for a couple of weeks. Last week was Easter, and the week before that we heard from the artist who did the uh, Stations of the Cross, which if you have not been across to see them in person, I hope sometime you'll take the opportunity to do that. It's in the lounge right outside the youth center, the choir area. just go uh, into the sanctuary building and down a flight of stairs and you you will not be able to miss it Um, so endure just a smidgen of a a repeat to get us up to speed because the things that I'm trying to teach in here do all hang together and um, you need to Keep some of that in mind in order to get today, and keep today in mind in order to get next week, and so forth. I, I introduced a new theme a few weeks ago called Embracing What Scares Us As Life Falls Apart. So both the Gospel of John, which we are still using as a guide, and next week we will do another one of the signed stories from the Gospel of John, Begin with an emphasis on the Word, both the Hebrew Scriptures and John. Begin with the emphasis on the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and God, according to the creation myth in, the, in Genesis, spoke the cosmos into being. Spoke the cosmos into being. Consequently, we spent some time talking about how words create worlds and of course it depends on the world you grew up in and the language that world gave you as to how you see yourself, how you see other people and how you see the world. That makes sense? I grew up believing that I had been given the right way to see the world until I began to travel and heard other people's way of seeing the world and saw that they believed about theirs what I believed about mine and that that sort of thing so perhaps the most important tool for us to use in coming to understand ourselves each other and the world in which we think we live is learning how words function now given that there are so many differences among us in this room, right at this moment, it is amazing that anything I say gets communicated. Because we all have differences of age, we have differences of education, of life experience, of gender, so forth. So different words mean different things to people. Also, a few weeks ago, I introduced the notion of a new trinity. These are the three things I think should guide us on our ongoing journey through life on this planet. And the Trinity is made up of love, which we spent a fair amount of time talking about. It's made up of truth, which includes honesty. And it's made up of freedom. Those three things. Love, truth, freedom. We'll talk more about love in a minute. Even sometimes when words are not said, there is a huge amount of room for misinterpretation and for missing each other. We constantly, even in our most intimate relationships, can misread somebody's body language or someone's facial expression. Or we read into body language and facial expression what that person may never have intended Many years ago, back in the Middle Ages, the Pope was urged by his advisors to banish the Jews from Rome. It was unseemly, said some some people, that these people should be living unmolested right in the center of Catholicism. So an edict was drawn up um, to evict Jews from Rome. And and much to the dismay of the Jews, because they knew that no matter where they went, they could expect even worse treatment than they were getting in Rome. So they pleaded with the Pope to reconsider the edict, and the Pope, being a fair-minded man, offered them a sporting proposition. The Pope said, let the Jews appoint somebody to debate with me, and if their spokesman wins, they can stay. Well, the Jews meant to consider this proposal. To turn it down meant eviction from, for sure. And to accept it would be to court defeat. Because who could possibly win a debate with the Pope in which he was both the participant and the judge? <laughs> but still, there was nothing to do but accept. Only it was impossible to find somebody who would volunteer for the task of debating with the Pope. So the burden of having this fate on the Jews on his shoulder was more than any one man could bear. Women were not considered, you understand. So when the synagogue janitor heard what was going on, he came before the chief rabbi and volunteered to represent the people in the debate. Of course, the other rabbis heard this and they just went berserk. The janitor? That's impossible. Well, said the chief rabbi, none of us is willing, so it will either be the janitor or no debate. Thus, for lack of anyone else, the janitor was appointed to debate with the pope. So the great day arrived. The pope sat on the throne in St. Peter's Square, surrounded by his cardinals, which are not birds. Uh, (laughs) Facing a large crowd of bishops and priests and the faithful and presently the little Jewish delegation arrived in their black robes and flowing beards with the janitor in the midst. Now there was a problem. Both sides knew about it and they agreed on a workaround. The Pope did not speak Hebrew or Yiddish and the Jews did not speak Italian or Latin. So the debate would be carried out in Panama. So the Pope got up and turned to face the janitor and the debate began. The Pope raised one finger and did this. And the janitor took one finger and did this. And the Pope then took one finger and did this. And the janitor took three fingers and did this. And the Pope then reached inside his robes and pulled out an apple and held it up. And the janitor reached into his sack and pulled out a flat piece of matzah bread and held that up. The Pope was astonished by all of this. And at the appearance of the matzah, the Pope exclaimed in a loud voice, the Jewish representative has won the debate. The edict of eviction is hereby revoked. Well, the Jewish leaders promptly surrounded the janitor and led him away, the cardinal's clustered around the Pope in astonishment. What happened, Your Holiness? They asked. It was impossible for us to follow the rapid thrust and parry of the debate. <laughs> the Pope wiped sweat from his forehead and said, that man is a brilliant theologian, a master of debate. I began by sweeping my hand across the sky to indicate the whole universe belongs to God. God. He thrust his finger down, reminding me that there is a place called hell where the devil reigns supreme. I raised one finger to signify there is one God. Imagine my shock when he raised three fingers to indicate that God manifests himself equally in three persons, thereby subscribing to our own doctrine of the Trinity. Knowing that it was impossible to get the better of this theological genius, I finally shifted the debate to another area. I pulled out an apple to indicate that according to some newfangled ideas, the earth is round. He immediately produced a flat piece of unleavened bread to remind me that according to the Bible, the earth is flat. So there was nothing to do but concede him the victory. So by now the Jews had arrived at their synagogue. What happened, they asked the janitor in bewilderment, and the janitor was indignant. He said, it was a lot of rubbish. First, the Pope moves his hand, telling us to get out of Rome, and I make it clear we're not moving. (laughs) So he points a finger at me and says, don't get fresh with me. And I point three fingers at him, saying, you're three times as fresh with me. The next thing I see, I see him taking out his lunch, so I took out mine. (laughs) (laughs) Reality mostly is not what it is. But what we have decided is, and often we first make our conclusions and then find some way to arrive at them. Now, I believe that what's going on right now between you and me is a miracle. Though the Pope and the janitor were looking at each other in that story, they were clearly not seeing what the other had intended. Consequently, the first order of the day in doing spiritual work is to be present, to be awake. Then we can more wisely and usefully devote ourselves to the primary task that is ours, and that's the process of growing in freedom and love. I said this in the sermon today, and I've said it in here before. After we have met our survival needs, which every person in this room has done, the primary purpose of human existence is to grow in freedom and love and and to contribute to the freedom and love of other people. And crucial to this task is knowing and speaking the truth. Now, I want to show you some pictures. I think you in the back can see them equally well. These photographs were used for an advertising campaign by the Colgate Company to to promote a particular brand of dental floss. These were the pictures that were used. And that's another. Okay. Now the point that Colgate wanted to make with these pictures was to convince you that having food caught in a visible place in your mouth, on your teeth, was very noticeable and offensive. So much so that people wouldn't notice other things. Go back and look at the pictures again. She has six fingers on one hand. There is a third arm in that picture. He is missing an ear. Now, the very fact that I set that up, informing you that it was an advertising campaign campaign for a dental hygiene project, that put a filter in your mind, causing you to see one thing. The priests of our national religion, which is consumerism, are constantly doing that sort of thing to us trying to skew our perception and and shape our choices. They tap into our natural inclination not to like our current circumstance by promising us that there is something better awaiting for us, if only, and you fill in the blank, buy their product, use their service, join their group, believe their story, whatever. Years ago, um, I used to brag that I had seen every IMAX film made until I met somebody who had. There are a lot of them out there, but at that time, I used to love to go to the IMAX here at the museum and see the films, and I went to see Everest. Some of you saw that film. And then I went to see a film about the making of Everest. And then I got really fascinated by those stories and films. I read John Krakauer's Into Thin Air, and I think there was a movie made out of that. And I saw other movies where this kind of uh, climbing, mountain climbing, was done. I saw the uh, documentary Free Solo, and then most recently, The Alpinist. I don't know if you've seen The Alpinist or not, but uh, I knew from the very beginning how that story was going to end. It's the story of Marc-Andre Leclerc and his commitment to climb without security of any kind the highest peaks on the globe. And, of course, he fell to his death. That was the end of that story. But when I talked about that in in here, a buddy of mine in California sent me, because I said one of the things I did was aware of was my fear of heights and maybe watching that film and reading those stories was a way to deal with that. So he sent me some photographs of people in risky climbing situations. I'm not going to show them all to you, just two. But just be prepared. Your heart's going to take a little, like when you see this, okay? Think you would do that? Here's another one. all about spiritual work is changing perspective and position this is where those pictures were taken it's all about perspective and position so why use fear as an opening through which to see who we are who others are and exactly what our situation is so in the process of getting uh, more prepared to do this series on fear i've gone back and reread a lot of pema children's stuff and i want to read you a, a fairly extended passage by her you know who she is right pema children is a buddhist nun who lives i think in nova scotia she's written a lot of books she was Um, Bill Moyer's favorite guest to have on his show to interview. She's just a solid person. I want you to listen to what she has to say. We cannot be in the present moment and run our storylines at the same time. Experiment with this yourself and watch how it changes you. Impermanence becomes vivid in the present moment. So do compassion and wonder and courage. And so does Fear. In fact, anyone who stands on the edge of the unknown, fully in the present, without a reference point, experiences groundlessness. That's when our understanding goes deeper, when we find that the present moment is a pretty vulnerable place. And this this can be completely unnerving and completely tender at the same time. What we're talking about is getting to know fear, becoming familiar with fear, looking it right in the eye, not as a way to solve problems, but as a complete undoing of the old ways of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and thinking. The truth is that when we really begin to do this, We're going to be continually humbled. Fear is a natural reaction of moving closer to the truth. If we commit ourselves to staying right where we are, then our experience becomes very vivid. Things become very clear when there is nowhere to escape. The only uh, news magazine I, news source I subscribe to as a magazine is The Week, the weekly publication called The Week. If you don't know it, I, I recommend it. And one of the lead articles um, this week is about what they call putting more guns on the street. So in 2011, only a single state, Vermont, allowed permitless carry. Now 25 states do. Gun sales have surged. The NRA and Second Amendment absolutists have assured us for years, even the decades, that the more guns they are, the safer we'll be. You feel safe? Their murder rate went up 30% in 2020. On average, I'm glad you're sitting down for this, on average... There is more than one mass shooting of four more people every single day in the United States. There are now nearly four million guns in American hands, so we surely must be the safest nation on the planet. Our own mayor said, um, now instead of throwing up the finger when people feel disrespected on the road, they are pulling out the gun and shooting. So William Falk, who is editor of the week, wrote, quote, In NRA dogma, the best response to this endless endless carnage is to arm yourself and prepare to shoot back. So when a bad guy sprays bullets in a crowded bar, theater, school, workplace, or subway, good guys can whip out their guns and return fire, while the unarmed dive under chairs. Doesn't that vision fill you with warm feelings of safety? So one of the things that specifically led me to change the theme of these talks is the rightward move taking place in this country and in the world in general. Seventy percent of the world's population, that's 5.4 billion people, currently live under a dictatorship while only 13% live in a liberal democracy with free elections, the rule of law, and individual rights. Just 34 of the world's 195 nations are liberal democracies, and that's down from 42 in 2012. It'd be interesting to see what the election in France yields today, because it looks like they're going in that same rightward direction. Now, these things, and I could list a lot more are what Buddhists call the big squeeze. Life puts a squeeze on you by suffering or death or one of those happy circumstances. And um, I hope I have not misled you into thinking that <clears throat> if you take up a meditation practice, that you're going to be okay. The biggest meditation, physical meditation practice, which is growing in this country, is yoga. And uh, I think people take up a sitting meditation or a Vipassana meditation or something, thinking that if they do, everything will just calm down in their lives. They'll become some sort of saintly creatures who will have the ability to go through life without unruffled feathers. Uh, I want to assure you that, that that won't happen. Um... I think the the first thing that people learn when they take up a meditation practice is humility because they learn how awful they are at it and they get caught up in trying to be good at it, which violates the very principle of non-judgment. So you're in this vicious circle the moment you put your butt on the cushion to try to be present and non-judgmental, and you think, man, I'm no good at this. You're not supposed to be good at it. You're just supposed to do it and notice the judgment. Now, I blame an element of evangelical Christianity for this quick fix, shallow approach to life. It is so sad to me to see the growth of religious groups that seem fiercely devoted to rigid simplicity. Now, I know that some of what I teach can initially feel terrifying. It isn't, ultimately. Ultimately, it's comforting, which is a point of view I hope to to get to today. However, people are lured into fundamentalism by the assurance, the promise, that there are three easy steps to marital bliss. There are five certain cures for depression. And seven proven keys to God's desire to make you wealthy. The life abundant that Jesus' way offers is much more mysterious and way less formulaic. Much messier than that. So the next time there's no ground to stand on, don't consider it an obstacle. Consider it a mark of remarkable good luck. That we have no ground to stand on can soften us up and inspire us. The scary places we encounter along the way of faith development and spiritual growth, I think are best seen as milestones, not stumbling blocks. Um, I had a teacher in seminary who said, um, the person who never dares a heresy never gains a truth. So I dared suggest last time that we replace the Trinity. I guess that's heretical. But it's much more understandable, workable, and embraceable love, honesty, truth than some misunderstood notion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's not a one of us who would not be better in every way If we increased our capacity to love and be loved if we increased our commitment to truth integrity and honesty and if we were committed to freedom for us and for everyone whatever else the purpose of your life is I'd say that it is in that arena somewhere Gandhi said the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others now, another thing that led to a shift in these talks to talk about embracing fear and uh, is death. I've been around a lot of death lately, a lot of death and dying. Um, and you know, uh, no one remembers the departed in terms of what they had. No one remembers the departed in terms of what they did necessarily they remember their qualities of compassion and forgiveness and helpfulness and laughter and friendliness all that kind of stuff the one thing Jesus commanded of his followers is that you love one another and the love that Jesus talked about aims to make the whole world better and to make the world whole now just as there is no place you can go and not experience grace There is no place you can go that does not need love, one where you cannot grow your skill at loving. So that's why I call today's talk Turning Roadblocks into Milestones. Now, everybody knows what a roadblock is. you got some place you want to go or need to be. you got some goal or plan or something or someone gets in the way of that not happening. So I was doing a funeral here Thursday and got a call from the funeral home that they had hit a roadblock in the traffic and were having difficult getting the hearse here. One of the things, not the only thing, of course, that I'm trying to convey in this time together is that if we ignore the power of love to, to bring greater balance and meaning to human existence, the more likely we're to continue our... Human journey is one long and glorious record. The solution to what ails us is love. some people think that is naive. So let's talk honestly about it. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, everybody in this room, God is love. You've heard that since childhood. As a matter of fact, the God is love phrase, although it predates what we call the first actual age, is really the heart of the first actual age And it was put into the framework of do not do to somebody else what you would not want done to you. That's the first actual age. Shows up in all the cultures at about the same time. Our way of getting to it is from the Hebrew prophets. Jesus was in that tradition of Hebrew prophecy. And where that teaching took root, peace broke out. Now, I know that it's not the human condition to want peace for a long time because, we fall out of knowing who we are and we want somebody else's stuff. The people who created the Gospel of John were in the same tradition. And that's why in the Gospel of John you have over and over and over and over God is love, God is love, God is love, God so loved the world that this command I give you, that you love one another. Love and the life this love produces is at the heart of the Gospel of John. God is love, and as Richard Rohr said over and over, Jesus was not about changing God's mind about us, but changing our mind about God. But understandings about God can form roadblocks for people. When I first began my work as a spiritual teacher back in the 60s, which was way too young to undertake such a path, I knew that God was a roadblock for those who had believed or who had been taught that there was a God out there somewhere. I was part of that 60s crowd. Some of you are old enough to remember the 60s and embarrassed by some of what you did then. But the 60s, the late 50s and the early 60s produced a shift in theology. We didn't have cosmological evolution then, but what we had were some evolutionary thinkers. The first I can remember reading uh, right when I entered graduate school was J.B. Phillips' book, Your God is Too Small. And then John A.T. Robinson's book, Honest to God. And those books really affected me profoundly. Robinson suggested that we stop using the word God for a long period of time. I'm going to suggest that to you today. Because the the word God causes most people reflexively reflexively to think of God as being out there. Or as being a being, like a rock exists or a tree exists. So God exists. Do you believe God exists? Like a rock or a tree. What kind of ego does a person have to have to think that he or she can comprehend God? What kind of ego does a person have to have to think that a rightly worded prayer to this God and this God will do their bidding? So I have tried my best to avoid religious language Especially if it's going to alienate people from what is. Now another problem with the statement, God is love, which by the way, I believe, is that it leads almost immediately on the part of many people to, well, if there is a loving God, how can he, always a he God, can allow the suffering that's going on in the world to happen? How how, how was it my, my granddaughter died of leukemia if God is love? I think that over the last 60 years, I have seen more people leave what might have proven a useful spiritual journey for them because of one of these two reasons. Either God ain't up there or this God doesn't act lovingly. I've spoken about, you know, the suffering in the world. I've spoken about that in here before, but if it would be helpful to revisit that, I would be happy to do so. In theology, it has a whole section to itself called theodicy. Why is there suffering in the world? Well, we could talk about that. So I'm going to suggest that for the next month, um, don't use the word God, even when you swear. I... I know you do. I've heard some of you. Use the word grace. I got that idea from Kathleen Singh, who uh, was going to come here and speak, but her untimely death prevented that. Use the word grace instead of God. Just see what it's like. So, God is a roadblock for people who believe there is no God. And God is a roadblock for those who believe there is no God. So, I I have been profoundly influenced by evolutionary cosmology. And so I say there is no God out there, up there, no theistic God who intervenes in our situation. That God does not exist. And that causes some people a lot of problem. Because they want the comfort of knowing that that God is there. So right now we're seeing played out in politics the blatant lies people are willing either to believe or speak not to be alienated from their group. I have spoken to clergy in the United Methodist Church who in their heart of hearts believe in full inclusion of all people at every level in the church, but they are afraid to say that because of being excluded from the group they're part of. I can understand that. my heart breaks for young Methodist clergy about what's about to happen in the United Methodist Church for those who really want a position like St. Paul's has and the freedom for me to say the kind of things I said from the pulpit today. And they don't have it. So what you hear from me reflects a movement, a progression that's been expanding over a long time. It's not just you don't hear just from me. It's going on in all traditions. I keep up mostly with the Buddhist uh, tradition uh, in the journals that I take. But it's happening there, too. The more articles about engaged Buddhism and uh, how how all of our cosmological information is shaping everything. So that what you have in religious and spiritual teachings are teachings that are more fluid, they're more inclusive than the ones that I certainly started with decades ago. I had lunch with an old friend this week, and we'd not um, really gotten caught up in decades. And we, um, the thing that dominated our talk, because we're old, both old guys, was the benefits that we have experienced from medical science. In the last 15 years and I am so grateful for those benefits because they saved my life I mean it is a it's a miracle but 20 years ago I don't think what I'm about to say is was possible maybe I'm not a, I'm not a doctor but um, By the way, if you ever have to have open heart surgery, let me know before you go. I have written a piece that is titled, What I Wish I Had Known Before I Had Open Heart Surgery, What I Wish I'd Been Told. Doctors don't have a time to inform you of everything that would be helpful to know, little things and big things. But uh, I didn't know that it was my prerogative to ask if it was possible for me to have open heart surgery without being put on the heart-lung machine. I had that. I lucked out because the guy who did my surgery actually has invented surgical equipment that enables him to operate on a beating heart. Now the advantage of that if they don't put you on a heart-lung machine is you don't get what's called pump head or strokes. And Um, I I don't want the growth that has happened in the medical field to be off limits in my religion. Right? It it seems like that so many people can grow in every area of their life but this one. And, And I don't want to be hemmed in by those two verses from the Bible that say we've always done it this way. Or I'm not comfortable with that. So there is this story of a caterpillar who looks up and sees a monarch butterfly overhead. And he says, you'll never get me up in one of those things. (laughs) But being a butterfly is what the caterpillar was made for. And we're made for ongoing growth. In order to become a butterfly, you must be willing to give up being a caterpillar. Now we live in a time when I call the loudest religious expression in our time that of conservative evangelical Christianity is becoming increasingly dogmatic and increasingly entrenched. It offers teachings that are restrictive and judgmental and they're now working their way into the political arena and even being made into laws. And I believe that what they teach and seek to impose on others is dangerous and damaging. They are seeking to take, over, take us into territory from which we may never recover. And our, our situation is complicated by the fact that some scientists are saying that we may have only 80 years before there is no hope of turning the damage we've done to the earth and our environment around. And for truly conservative Christians, this such end-time prophecy is a gleeful time. Maybe uh, arguing a progressive form of religion in the face of what's happening is of little use, but I'm going to continue. So the values you hear taught and hear each week, peace, hope, love, joy, patience, humility, they're not primarily about what you have to believe. I hope you believe in those values. But they can be embraced regardless of your religious tradition, beliefs, or lack thereof. It's my belief, and you'll have to decide this for yourself, that saving our neighbor is much more important than saving a belief system. I'm not saying beliefs don't matter. They do. One of my beliefs is that holding on to beliefs limits our experience of life. Gotta let go. I'm talking about the stubborn attitude of having to have things be a particular way. It's grasping, grasping, grasping beliefs, grasping opinions, and grasping causes our problems. Grasping is the opposite of freedom, letting go. Using beliefs this way creates a situation in which we choose to be blind instead of seeing, deaf instead of hearing, being asleep instead of awake, being dead instead of alive. Now, in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives some concrete instruction that we can follow. Get up, take up your bed, get about your life. Open your eyes, open your ears, come forth and live. This is from the Lazarus story, which we'll get to down the road. Seeing clearly without judgment, coming back to the present moment. Now, from now to the moment that you die, you can do that. So I'll give you this time today in two sentences. Four. Sorry. There is nothing to attain. You have everything you need. There is no one other for you to be. You are fine just the way we are. Now, likely, all of us need to let go of some stuff so that we can stand in the presence of grace, which, of course, we are already in, but we're not always aware of that. But we need to let go of some stuff so that we can stand in the presence of grace. Able to receive. Not to receive things as we want them to be, but to receive things as they are. So, our time has come to an end. Where will we go and who will we be? We go out to be God's people in the world. I'll see you across the street in 20 minutes. (laughs)